you take your Bibles tonight and turn to Exodus 3. We're going to look at the first 12 verses. Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side. Hebrew word may be more the deepest part of the wilderness. Came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because they're taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Wilderness survival, um, believe it or not, is very, very popular um, in the world of reality TV, which I hope you hardly watch any of. Um, Not to mention very lucrative. I looked on the internet and you could... Top 10 wilderness shows, they're all listed in order of popularity. And one of the most popular one, You versus Wild, Bear Gillis. You ever seen him? He's a pretty rugged guy. I don't know if he, he's the guy that takes celebrities out there, but I know he does a lot of outside crazy things in the wilderness. Another one was Win the Wilderness, and it's an Alaskas, Alaskan wilderness, and it's a couples competition. And you have all this stuff that you have to do. I think, I'm not lying to you, I think the last couple that won, according to the article, was in their early 70s. And so uh, you have all kinds of winners and people in that group. And then the one that struck my attention most was the one that's on the History Channel called Alone. Here is the advertisement for it. Alone invites tough guys and girls to be dropped in the middle of the wilderness with only one rule. Don't die. Doesn't make you want to do it, does it? You lose the competition. Listen, this, this is how you lose. If you have to be taken out of the wilderness on a helicopter. Not very exciting to me. To me, wilderness is having to stay at like Motel 6 or something. That's about as wilderness as I get. But the prize for winning these games, half million dollars. Now, you look at that, you thought, who would have ever thought that wilderness survival would be considered a game competition to be televised, much less a moneymaker. But the titles of the show do tell you something, doesn't it? 
You versus wild, short for wilderness. You ever felt like that? You ever go through experiences and you know other people around you, but you feel like it's just you versus the trouble that you're facing physically, financially, emotionally, psychologically, you versus wild. Then you got the other one, alone, one-on-one in the wilderness, all by yourself, facing the dangers of the desert, and you have the strength, or so you hope, on your own. When the wilderness, listen to this, tough guys and tough girls. That's what I would call someone who sees himself as a wilderness warrior. I, I don't know if that would be something that you would categorize yourself as. I, I don't think I want to try it out if I have to be choppered out, perhaps. But TV reality, what I've found, TV reality it very seldom corresponds to your reality, does it? It's just not true. Um, most of us are not wilderness warriors. We're not people who are okay being alone. We're not trying to strike out on our own. We don't think it's certainly a competition. And I don't know about you, but even my spiritual wilderness wanderings, I don't think I would like them televised. Um, but the song we sang tonight, the little chorus, the Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All I have to do is follow. Doesn't that sound really simple? All I have to do. When someone says that, all I have to do, this is all you got to do. This is your only job. One rule. All I have to do is follow. It sounds so simple. sounds like a snap. should be easy to do until you're alone, until it's you versus the wild, until you're trying to win the wilderness, and you find out that it's not as easy as you think. Can I say it this way tonight? When you get dropped into the wilderness as a Christian by God, there's only one rule. No God. You have to know God. And I don't know, and hear hear me, I don't mean know about God. I would think tonight almost everyone in here to one degree or another, some more than others, that we know about him. I mean, we certainly know things. No one had his trouble finding Exodus as the second book in the Bible, I don't think. So we know about him. But here's what I mean. The only rule is know God. Um, And we learn about God in the wilderness. Some of the things we learn about God can't be learned really anywhere else except in wilderness experiences. Moses had to learn that one rule. If he was, chapter 3 we're in, if 19 and 20, or actually before that, 10 through 12, he's going to do all the plagues. He's going to lead them out of Egypt. He's going to get them through the Red Sea into the promised land or on the way to the promised land. If he's going to do all that and go through the wilderness, listen, he has to learn that lesson now. Can I tell you this? If you don't learn the lesson of knowing God before you get into the wilderness, you won't learn it once you get in there. And certainly not nearly as much or well. It's something you have to know ahead of time. Before you hit the wilderness, before you're dropped in, before you need choppered out, you need to really know God. And tonight's passage, one that you're very familiar with, in fact, it was very familiar to biblical readers, twice in the gospel, once in Stephen's speech in Acts 7, it's called the burning bush passage. One Bible has it, one text has it as the the burning bush portion. I mean, that's how they refer to it. That's how Jesus himself referred to it when he talked about the gospel. It had its own little kind of like subcategory, the burning bush. It was very important because it's one of the key revelations about knowing God and all of Scripture. So tonight we're going to look at 
two revelations about God, two attributes of God that you need to know if you're going to win the wilderness, if you're going to do the alone thing at times like Moses does, if you're going to be able to handle being in the wilderness, if all you have to do is follow, you're going to have to know this. Look at it in the text, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3. First thing you got to know is God is transcendent. Write that down. Let me tell you what that means. I call this wilderness theological training. Um, Here's the framework. If you're looking for structure, here's how I developed the text. In this passage, verses 1 through 12, there are two brackets, one big and one smaller. Here's the first one. Verse 1 starts off telling you about getting to the mountain, and verse 12 closes with the same word mountain about coming back to this mountain. And obviously in God's eyes that the wilderness is all about Sinai. It's all about the mountain. It's where they get the Ten Commandments. It also happens to be the place where they do the golden calf thing. It's a very huge part because here's what wilderness is mainly about. It's about knowing God so that you can worship him correctly. And mainly contextually worship him in the wilderness because it's rough. Can I tell you, when America's things are great here, we come to an air-conditioned auditorium. No one's, you know, putting a gun to our head and saying, if we worship God, you're going to die. No one's taking away things from us right now. See, we are not in the wilderness. We're at, we're, we have it good in America as of now, at least good compared to what it could be. But when you get to the wilderness, the question is, will you still worship God? For Abraham, when God says, offer your son, will you still worship him? When Job loses everything he has in a day, will you still worship him? And now I can tell you this, the only way that you'll ever be able to say that is if you believe and know how transcendent God really is. Now mountains, as I referred to just a moment ago, are crucial in the Bible, and here's why. They are places of revelation. God uses mountains to give us revelation mainly about himself. So here you go, class. Tell me the name of a mountain in the Bible where God gives revelation. Okay, yep, that was the one we're doing, right? So that's first and obvious, most of all. Mount Sinai, we get the Ten Commandments there. God's on top of the mountain. He's giving those things, right, to us. Hebrews 12, you've not come to Mount Sinai, right? But we've come to Mount Zion, right? So we, we have a different approach to God now. But mountains are for revelation. What's another one? Mount right. The Olivet, Mount Olive, right? The Olivet Mountain where Jesus was. We learn a lot about him there. What else is another one? Uh, Tim? Mount of Transfiguration. Yes, the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you know which one Dave left? Is he here? Dave, are you still here? He went out for a second. Where are you? Dave, stop switching seats. Um, do you remember off the top of your head? Is Mount Tabor... The same as Mount Hermon? Are they two different? Is that two names for the same thing or not? Mount of Transfiguration. Which one was it? This is a Jeopardy. No, you're thinking Temptations, yeah. But anyways, one of those mountains, right? Mount of Transfiguration, where we get revelation of Jesus, shows his deity to the disciples. Huge mountain of revelation. What's another one? Did I miss somebody? What's another one? Mount Moriah, what did we learn on Mount Moriah? Yes, sacrifice. Okay, what did we learn? I'll give you a hint. What mountain do we learn about God and get revelation from him when it comes to Elijah? Yes, Mount Carmel. Or is it caramel? I don't. 
Mount Carmel, right? So here's what we, in fact, there's an interesting article where the whole article is telling the whole Bible story by using mountains. It's a pretty cool article and uh, worth reading sometime. But mountain experiences, here's what I, I say it for. Mountain experiences, mountaintop experiences, and wilderness experience are usually follows. You usually have a mountaintop experience followed by a wilderness experience. So you have something really great, God gives you revelation, and then you have a wilderness experience that follows it to kind of keep you down to earth and humble. But in this passage, as in a couple others, the mountaintop and the wilderness experience go together. They go together. And, and here's what happens. Moses is at Mount Sinai, Horeb, and the word Horeb means parched mountain. Probably, as the commentator Robert Alter says, because it was a full three days journey from the Nile, the closest amount of water. So parched mountain meant all rocky terrain. There was nothing living hardly there. It was very parched. And here's what happens. And the worst place, in fact, isn't it interesting, Moses, whose life and name is associated with water, is going to meet God in a place where it's parched and there is no water. Because here's what we have to learn. We have to know God, but we have to come to the end of ourselves to do it. And so Moses is in a place where he is not in his element at all. He's out in there with the sheep. He, he sees a burning bush, and he stops, and God's going to give him a wilderness experience. Now, if you want to take the time, I'm just going to pass by it a little bit. If you turn in your Bibles, don't do it, though. First Kings 19, you're going to find in Elijah's life that he comes to the same mountain and it's also called the mountain of God, Horeb, 1 Kings 19. And he is running from Elijah. He had just gone in chapter 18. All the prophets of Baal had been killed. And he had such a great victory, mountaintop experience. And now he's going to have a wilderness experience. He goes to the Sinai, the mountain of God. And he's very dejected. He's afraid. He's running for his life. And God appears to him. He's on the mountain, Sinai, like Moses was. He's seemingly in a cave. And God says he's going to pass him by, pass by him. Same language used in Exodus 32 and 34 of Moses getting the revelation of God when God passed by the rock, showed him his glory. This time, though, God doesn't appear in a fire. He goes, a wind happens that shakes the rocks. There's an earthquake that happens. Fire is given, and God is not in any of those. And then there says in Hebrew, a very, literally, a very thin silence. In other words, we would say maybe today a whisper, and God was in that. Like Moses, Elijah wraps his face in his mantle because he can't look at God. He knows if he looks at God, he will die. And so we have the mountain top experience in the wilderness experience as being what guides this text. It's the framework for it. That's what Moses is going to have. And we're going to see it repeated in other places in the scripture. The other bracket, if you want to write it down to help you understand what the text is about, is in verse 2 and 9, they both have the word behold. And gospels use this a lot. It really tells you the two different things that God wants you to know about him to win your wilderness experience. And the first one, behold, is what we're on right now, verse 2. It's about God's transcendence. And if you're putting an outline tonight, put God is transcendent, who he is. That's the first thing he wants you to know. And the second one, verse 9, we're going to get there in a minute. That behold tells you about God is imminent, what he does. So we got God who is transcendent. He's beyond anything, but also he's imminent. He's up close and personal. Who he is and what he does 
for extra study. We won't get there tonight. In chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, which is part of this text, there's another behold on both those verses. It's another little bracket to show you really what God can do and how he keeps his promises. But let's tackle them together. God first is transcendent. Behold, verse 2, it says, The angel of the Lord came in a flame of fire. The angel of the Lord is not an angel. He's a special Christophany, which is a big hairy word, which means Christ appears in pre-existent form, this time inside the fire of the burning bush. Now, God, this is not something new for the Israelites, or it won't be, because how does he lead them through the wilderness? Do you remember how he does it during the day? Yes? Yes, cloudy pillar, smoke, right, from the fire. And what's the other one? What's at night? The pillar of fire. So one of the ways God manifests his presence, his holy presence, I should say, is by fire. When the Egyptians trap Israel by the Red Sea and God's gonna, right, he's gonna protect his people and they're gonna go through on dry land and then the Egyptians are gonna be swallowed up what keeps the Egyptians from coming and attacking Israel as they're going through the Red Sea? Do you remember? Yes, the wall of fire. So there, there is God's presence again right there. in the. This is all in Exodus, right? Right there. And he separates, he protects because his presence is there. At Pentecost, how was the Holy Spirit manifest? Tongues of fire, a presence of God. Daniel and his three friends we're in the fiery furnace, and who was the fourth person in there? Yes, Jesus, Christophany, yes. And he was the fourth man in the fire, and I believe he is the fire that protects them as well. Revelation, if you read it, uh, Jesus' eyes are as like a flame of fire. So, so fire in the Bible is representing God's presence, his holy presence, and here's what the bush does, verse 2. It's burning, yet it's not consumed. Now, what is unusual about that? Stay with me. A fire not dependent on anything. When you have a fire, it usually is it's started by someone or something, and then eventually it goes out. But this fire consumes, but it doesn't burn the bush. It keeps going. And it doesn't have a source. It's its own source of power. The theological term for God's ability to do that is a word called aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Latin a-si, which means of himself or from himself. Meaning, here's what it means. God is self-existent. See, you and I, we're dependent. We're, we have derivative life. Someone has to give it to us. And then someone has to sustain it. Not true with God. A sadie means he has life in and of himself. Jesus said that God could give everybody eternal life because he is eternal life, right? So God can give life. He's self-existent. In other words, he was never had a beginning. He never had an ending. No one ever, no one ever created him. He is the creator. So he is self-existent. He is independent of anyone and anything outside of himself. Secondly, God is self-sufficient. He doesn't depend on anyone or anything to continue that existence or to carry out his sovereign purposes. So a sadie means God is totally self-existent and he's self-sufficient. He doesn't have to have anybody help him to continue to be that way. And lastly, listen, it's important, God is self-satisfied. You know what that means? That means he relies on nothing in all of creation to be fulfilled 
or content. Say, Pastor Walker, that's really great theology. So what? What does that mean? Here's what the burning bush means when you look at it and see God. God is independent in a completely absolute sense. He is Asi. See, if you're going to win in the wilderness, here's what you have to know about God. He is fully sufficient. He is fully satisfied in and of himself. Why do I need to know that? Because you're not. Do you see what Moses learns? Here's what God says. I am a consuming fire. I didn't have a start. I didn't, no one keeps it going because I am self-existent. I am self-sufficient and self-satisfied. Moses, you have to know that because in the wilderness, here's what you're going to learn real quick. You are not. I'm independent in an absolute sense, and you, Moses, are dependent in an absolute sense. You have a beginning, you have an ending, and you are not self-sufficient. You are limited. You can't handle it. You are not self-satisfied. And every time you try, Moses, to find satisfaction in the creation or something outside of the creator, you are going to be sorely disappointed. Now listen, here's the application. We live in a world, right? We live in a world that is desperately pursuing its own sufficiency and satisfaction. We are in the creature rather than the creator. We have never come to the grips as humanity that we are nothing without him. Nothing without him. There's a little children's book that didn't last very long. I'm not sure why. It was by a company that went defunct really fast. And it's really old. I'm sure you can't even get it anymore. And the name of the book was called Palm Monday. And it was about the donkey. The donkey that Jesus rode in. On Palm Sunday, the donkey was fabulous and famous. Jesus is sitting. The crowds are there. Everyone's yelling and screaming. This donkey thinks that he is everything until Monday morning. Because on Palm Monday, nobody even cares where the donkey is. They don't pay him any mind. And he comes to the realization how sad his life is. And here's why. Because he's nobody. He never comes to the realization that's because Jesus isn't there anymore. Isn't it sad that there are a lot of Christians who've never come to the realization of Palm Monday? They never come to the realization that they are nothing without God. See, that's what wilderness teaches. That's why the transcendence of God is abs- and his aseity is absolutely essential because we are nothing without him. Hear me. Prideful hearts, yours and mine, we are averse to depending on God for our joy. We don't want to be dependent creatures. And we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves. And we think that if a higher salary would come our way, a better job, a nicer looking girlfriend, a better career, healthier bodies, happier marriages. And we think that if we pursue these things and we get these things, see, that we'll find the satisfaction that seems to elude us. And every time we find it in the creature rather than the creator, we are missing out and making the same mistake that God is trying to help Moses and Israel avoid. C.S. Lewis put it this way, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition 
when infinite joy is offered to us. See, our problem isn't that our desires are too strong. They're too weak. See, they're too weak because we're putting them in the wrong place, in the creature rather than the creator. See, here's what Moses needs to learn in the wilderness. Trust God for everything. Find God to be your sufficiency. Find God to be your satisfaction. And when they do, did you notice, I think was alluded to in the wilderness by John, you know, the Bible says for 40 years when they get into the promised land, read the book of Joshua for yourself, their clothes didn't wear out, their shoes didn't wear out, their sandals didn't wear out, it says, and they had food when they needed it, they had water when they needed it, and they never had to be Israel versus the wild. They never had to say the title alone of their show. They didn't have to. You know why? Because it finally dawned on the next generation that they were nothing without God and they needed him for everything. So the first theological part of transcendency is aseity. God is self-existent, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, and we have to find it in him. Second one is God's sanctity. Can you look at that? Moses, it says, Moses, Moses. And that's what God says out of the burning bush. And then he says this to him, take your sandals off your feet. The Wilderness Survival Guide book I have, it has a section and a category and a chapter says having the right stuff. One of, under that category is gear. And one of it is you have to have the right shoes, boots, or whatever it is you have. Obviously, in the spiritual wilderness guide, you don't have to have sandals because God says to Moses, take yours off. If you know anything about ancient Near East culture, taking your shoes off is a sign of worship and humility. How do you make God, the transcendent God, your sufficiency? How do you keep making him your satisfaction? How do you keep from making the creature an idol and finding it in the wrong place? How do you refuse that temptation in our world on a regular basis? You know how you do it? You get up every day and you walk on holy ground and you take your sandals off. You you get humble before God. And this is such an important truth that God says to Moses what's called in literature a double vocative. Moses, Moses. And that's repeated in all of Scripture. There's Jacob, Jacob, Abraham, Abraham. David cries out, Absalom, Absalom. Jesus says, Martha, Martha. He wants to teach her a lesson. Saul, Saul. Gets his attention on Damascus Road. Simon, Simon. Satan's going to sift you as wheat. Samuel, Samuel. And he wakes up out of sleep. Jesus says on the last day, some people will say, Lord, Lord. See, every time you use the double vocative, it's, it's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's an intense thing. It's God really wanting your attention. So tonight, just picture your name, Lance, Lance. Here's what he's saying with your name. Listen, you're in the wilderness and you're never gonna win it if you don't know me. If you don't see me, if you don't see that I'm your all-sufficiency, if you don't see also that I am holy, sanctified. See, take your sandals off. You're on holy ground. Joshua, the second half of this conquest, when he gets to Canaan in chapter 5, has the same exact experience as Moses in his own context. He sees the armored soldier with the flaming sword and says, are you on my team or am I on yours? Vice versa, right? And he says, I'm on neither. Take your sandals off your feet. They're the only two episodes where that exact phraseology is used in the Old Testament. Because Joshua needed to see, he, he needed to see God's transcendence. He needed to know that God was there, right? 
but he also needs to know his imminence because God was going to fight their battles for them. See, what do you learn about God? Here's what you learn. He's God and you're not. He's sufficient and you're not. He's holy and you're not. In the wilderness, here's what you learn. Everything that he is and everything you're not. And what does that mean? That means this, that you cannot clearly see yourself until you first clearly see God. You've got to have, you've got to see his transcendent. You've got to see for who he is. And when you see who he is, see, then he's going to give you identity formation. He's going to tell you, Moses, this is who you are. You are my servant. You are to follow me in the wilderness. You are on holy ground. You, take your, you need to be humble. That's all you need to do is follow. So God is first, number one, we're almost done, transcendent. Secondly, God is imminent, verses 6 through 12. It starts this way. Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God, it says in verse 6, and live. In other words, God, you want to use me, but here's the first thing you tell me. Don't get too close. Later on, they can't get close to Mount. They have to build a fence around the bottom of the mountain because even if a cow wanders in there, it'll be struck dead. You can't get close to God. Now, now see, you think, what, what kind of God is that? In the wilderness, this is a God that I can't get too close to. But here's what the rest of the verses are, 7 through 12. It's God is imminent. You can't get close to him because of your sin, but because of who he is, he can get close to you. See, do you see what he does in the text? I am the God of your father, your fathers. And then he starts naming them. Just like he said, Moses, Moses, see, I am God, transcendent, way out there, completely different than you are, holy self-existent. I am all those things that's hard to wrap your head around. But listen, I'm also the God of your father. And by the way, I knew them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I know their names. I know your name, Moses. He is transcendent, but at the same time, he is incredibly personal. Do you see the verbs in verse 7? I have seen, I have heard, I know. God is not a distant deity that is simply detached in heaven and has no clue about the details going on in your life. Those three verbs, the same ones used in the chapter 2 that brings this chapter to pass, 2.24 and 25 of Exodus repeats those exact three verbs. Why? Because here's what Moses needs to know in the wilderness, and you and I need to know. God is bigger than any problem we're going to face. He is transcendent. He can handle it. He is holy. He is self-existent. He can do all those things. He is way out there, but he's also right in here. See, he knows, he hears, and he sees. But it's more than that. Verse 8 says, here's what God tells Moses. I have come down, underline it, I have come down to bring them up. Do you see that? He doesn't just stay at a distance. Listen, listen. He doesn't just see, he doesn't just hear, he doesn't just know. He's not just getting reports from the Israelite angels that come and take care. He doesn't just say, oh yeah, I see that because I can see anything. You know what he says? I'm coming down. I'm condescending. You are so sinful that you can't see me or get close to me, so I'm going to make the effort to come to you. You can't come up to me, but I'll come up to you. And I'm going to, see, I'm coming down to bring you up. That's the God that we serve. Imminent, close, personal. And that's why verse 9, the other little bracket, has the word behold in it. 
Do you see what he hears and sees and feels? Do you see the words? He hears affliction, crying, suffering, oppression. Do you see all those things? He doesn't just see you collectively. He doesn't just see the people of Faith Baptist Church in general. He knows every suffering. That's physical. The affliction. The crying. That's emotional. The oppression. That's the overwhelming constant, constant psychological problems. For years of, he sees 400 years of it. He sees all of it. Can I tell you tonight, you got to know both. God is holy and he's loving at the same time. Isn't that the cross? Isn't that the gospel? Isn't that our God? And then he says this, I know all those things. I'm coming down. How close will he get? Moses is afraid because God wants to send him to Pharaoh, which would be the superpower of their day, and Pharaoh would be the president of the most powerful nation in the world. He knows that because he lived there for 40 years. Moses is a nobody anymore. He used to be a somebody, and now he's less than a nobody because he's in the desert, and he's a shepherd, which Egyptians despised. He has no clout. He has no platform. He has no wisdom. He has no power. He has no strength, and he's been exiled for 40 years on top of all of it. How can he be the Savior? Here's how. Verse 12. I'll be with you. It's just God. See, you know what the wilderness teaches you? It's not your talents. It's not your abilities, although those are great, that God gives. You know what it is? It's him. That's how, you get, that's how you win the wilderness. You know who he is. You know what he can do. And all you do is follow. I'll be with you, Moses, before Pharaoh. I'll be with you when you lead this people through the wilderness and they want to stone you. I'll be with you in the wilderness I'll take you by the hand. See, you may have to hide your face from me because of your sin, but I will never hide my face from you. You'll be close, very close. See, Joshua needed both transcendency and imminency. Moses needed both, and so do you and I. We need to know him. Know him that he is bigger and greater than anything we've ever known, but he's also closer and more compassionate than anything we ever dreamed. And that is our God. Those truths. See, that's what sustains you and helps you win the wilderness. So, see, we're never really alone, are we? Never alone in the wilderness. He's always there with us. See, there's one rule if you want to win the wilderness. You know what it is? Know God. Really know God. Do you? Let's pray.